Paul. Very excited and you know looking forward to uh, talking to you, Paul Alapat. He's the Chief Product Officer of Acuity Knowledge Partners, and Paul has over three decades of experience in financial economics, having worked with the likes of Lehman Brothers, Namura, Amba, and Moody's. He's also a guest professor at IIM Bengaluru, where he not only teaches contemporary financial economics but also mentors and counsels MBA students. On today's episode, he will decode the five trillion dollar economy dream of India and the impact of COVID nineteen on this dream, and what should be the next step. If you could decode GDP, you can demystify what GDP actually means for our viewers who don't know it. Right. Uh, firstly, at the outset, uh, thank you, Shraddha, for having me, and I'm uh, delighted to to just uh, <clears throat> engage in this conversation and. Uh, given that it's a very fluid time it's always a discussion of thoughts it's nothing is definitive i can share what my thinking is on this so just getting to your first question on um, what is gdp i think the best way to uh, think of this is like the value added um by a sovereign nation or an economy over the course of a calendar year and typically uh, in india the fiscal year is march to uh, <clears throat> Yeah, uh, sorry, April first to March thirty first, so that sort of thing. So it is the uh, sum total of uh, production, goods and services by the residents of that nation. Uh, so um, there are various ways to measure it from the demand side, from the supply side, uh, or from the income side. So that is like if we add up all the rental income, all the uh, profits, all the wages. There is another way to measure this. So yeah, it is sort of a, it's a flow. It is not a stock. So it is basically the flow created during that year. So if you take a household, what is their income? Add all the household incomes. Uh, deduct all the duplication. Add the export minus import, government spending, and investment spending, and that's how you sort of arrive at this. So the formal definition is it's the value addition in a certain geography. Okay, that, thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We are going to have the lowest GDP probably since two thousand eight. What does this mean for the common man? What does it mean for all of us? Right, and I think uh, maybe just before that, uh, Shraddha, sort of uh, there is real GDP, there is nominal GDP, and there is uh, GDP purchasing power parity. When we talk about growth rates, it's generally real GDP. That means GDP at a constant price. So it can be on 2012 prices or whatever base year you want, so that you don't have inflation distorting it. So uh, yes, the general this thing and uh, the pointers we have are from the US because that comes out with numbers a little faster than India releases it. So the general indication for the first quarter was. Uh, Uh, U.S. GDP contracted 4.8 percent, and this is with only two weeks of impact of coronavirus, because really this started affecting in March. When we look at the second quarter, the forecasts are anywhere from 20 percent to 30 percent. These are numbers that are off the charts. As a financial economist, professional economist, we haven't seen these numbers. In India, it's a much younger economy. We have a certain amount of uh, spending. Because of the demographics, etc., uh, and the level of development, so for India, contraction is unparalleled. 
for us, it just being flat itself is a big major recession. Uh, so, the general forecasts are now, I think, tending towards a contraction. So, the forecast um, from, uh, I think, a lot of rating agencies, etc. are more like minus 2%, uh, which uh, historically, I mean, we ha- I-, I can't remember a recession in India. So, contraction is very, very, uh, we don't have it on record really. So, it is um, dire and the numbers we're seeing out of China, 6%, I mean, these are all numbers off the chart. So, if you want perspective, this for professional economists, this is the worst contraction since the Great Depression. That's 1930s. Uh, 2008 and all is n- n- nothing compared in macro terms. So, what does it mean for a common man? The biggest this thing is, this is a basically a supply side shock, which basically meant that certain companies could not work because of this medical illness. They had to shut this thing, which led to cash flow problems which is now leading to layoffs. So, companies are now either cutting salaries or letting go people, airline industry, hospitality. So, this Friday, we will get the first snapshot of US unemployment. And if you want perspective, the last number in the US was 4.4%. This Friday, we are expecting it to increase to 16.4%. Wow. So, it is, I mean, you can get some sort of Magnitude six. So for economists, this is like the numbers we haven't seen. So basically, jobs. There are about thirty million people in the U.S. who have lost jobs yeah. over the course of four weeks, which is everything that was created over ten years. So now, hopefully, some of these jobs will come back quickly. But um, this is the biggest problem. We don't know if it is three months away, six months away, twelve months away, eighteen months away. The only consensus seems to be a vaccine is at least eighteen months away. Which essentially means that you can open an office, but can you ask your employees to come back? Because you don't have a vaccine. So the return can only be voluntary today. You can't compel anybody to come back to work because if they get infected, you don't have protection. So under these conditions, it's a very, very uncertain environment, which we are looking at, which basically means that uh, small and medium businesses could have cash flow problems, liquidity problems. Some of them will close down, which basically means some un- unemployment will increase. There is no two ways about it. For India, the additional complications of poverty, people below the poverty line is about 15%. There is a very real chance that could double. Yeah. So quite a few, we're talking about millions, could again slip below the poverty line, which basically means we have to have not only an economic goal, we have a social stability goal which the government has to handle. In the last few years, I've been talking about the demographic dividend. Whenever we talk about India, we talk about the huge numbers. Also in the startup ecosystem, the kind of investments that we have seen is also on the back of the, you know, the huge number of people that we have. Uh, I just wanted to ask you, what sense do you make of that as of now in terms of the economics or the economy going forward? Right, Shraddha. So I think that's a very pertinent point. See, the excitement about India, and, and that will not go away, it was because of this demographics, the demographic dividend. What is a demographic dividend? It is essentially a stage in different countries cycle when there's a big bump from non-working age to working age. In economics, is generally 16 years old. So suddenly there's a huge number of people who slip into the working age, which basically means they get employed. The general factor productivity increases. 
China witnessed this in um, uh, late uh, 70s, early uh, 80s. Today, India is on the threshold of that. So the big excitement is that we will suddenly get a bump up in productivity, in growth, in purchasing power because the non-working age moves into working age. Now, that is the reason India had a big premium. And um, the challenge is that these people have to be rightfully trained. They have to have the right education because otherwise they will not get employed. Then you can have a demographic dividend which turns into a demographic debacle or a demographic bomb or whatever you want to call it, because you then have unemployed youth who can get restless and all the things. So uh, I don't think we have lost um, the whole plot, but there is a risk that time is ticking away. These are about the years when we should have started experiencing the benefits of this demographic dividend a growth acceleration, but unfortunately, because of coronavirus, because of this whole global uh, pandemic shock, um, one or two years will be missed. Um, then there is a whole issue of middle class. There's a huge uh, jump in middle class population, which basically augurs well for spending, for purchasing power. Countries become cleaner because the middle class is much more educated and more uh, demanding of the political leadership, ethics, integrity, etc. So there was excitement about the Indian middle class. So there were a lot of these demographic related, which are medium term, long term trends. So the good news is that you miss one or two years, you still have 10 years left or 15 years. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, we cannot afford to miss it because it is a big boost, which um, Southeast Asia enjoyed it 30 years ago. China enjoyed it 25 years ago. This was India's turn. So for economists, yeah. um, it is a big thing. Or the other segment, which has been like a huge, uh, I would say, as a bone, backbone kind of a segment is the MSME segment. And, and, and if you look at uh, countries like Germany, which are like so advanced, have actually grown because of this segment mm-hmm. performing. Mm-hmm. What would be required to get this, this segment yes. energized? So it's, it's, little, uh, it's a difficult to measure that it's essentially, I mean, like, especially the smaller you get, you have fewer resources to uh, uh, navigate with. So your cash balance probably is one month. Your liquidity is tight. You cannot afford to keep employees on your roll. Credit banks would be very careful. See, the big problem in India was that the banking system, the NBFC system was not healthy when we went into this crisis. So the credit flow, as it it was very weak. And the credit flow is like blood circulation, as I keep saying. If blood is not circulating properly, your entire body starts weakening. So that yeah. was the state of the Indian economy. Our GDP was going down to about 4% before this, despite low oil prices. So despite favorable external environment, we were decelerating. So the banking system enters this unhealthy. So right now, they are in no position to bail out and keep credit going, especially to the riskier segments, which is the small and medium. So I think that there will be a, a definitely an economic stimulus package. I mean, they're talking about the second stimulus package that the finance minister is working on, yeah. which will again sort of give incentives. RBI will sort of give, I think, a concessionary credit so that banks can lend it onwards. I think the big challenge is that um, RBI can initiate it, but the banks have to implement it. So they can give all these incentives, like they made this uh, fund to give out to mutual funds because of the 
a Franklin Templeton problem. Now the question is like, will the banks carry on with that fund and sort of make use of that credit facility to sort of actually lend? So you, like you can take a horse to the water, you can't force it to drink. So yeah. it is like pushing on a string. So that is a whole issue of confidence. So if a bank is not confident about the quality of its NPAs, it is going to be very, very careful. So I think uh, what we are worried about is that the banking system is not, um, will not be very supported because they are in a weak position. The NDFC is in a weak position. So the first casualties will be the micro industries and the small industries and the medium enterprises. And these are labor intensive industries. So the impact on unemployment is disproportionate. Yeah. So I think uh, it is a, uh, Something that, uh, yes, you will have to have very, very focused subsidies. You'll have to have focused bailouts. Uh, you will have to sort of uh, increase government spending because right now demand is a problem. If I start losing jobs, private spending today is what? Groceries, medicines, essentials. Nobody's going out to buy a car. Car sales in April was zero. Yeah. Uh, nobody's going out to buy any white uh, consumer I mean, durables. There is no hurry for a big holiday. You can't travel anyway. So spending, private spending is almost at a standstill. Everybody's sort of cutting back and being careful. So in this environment, you need the government to basically jumpstart the economy. They have to create public works. They have to create public housing. They have to go after infrastructure spending and create demand for all these small, medium enterprises and even large enterprises. So creation of demand is almost now a government responsibility till we get a certain amount of private traction and external yeah. demand. And external you demand know, today. Yeah. Sorry, Thank sorry. God. Yeah, sorry. What were you saying? External no, demand? It's a big problem too, right? So the big, uh, let's take China. China is the first one out of this coronavirus, at least they're sort of uh, open. Yeah. Back. So factories are working. Problem they're finding is that uh, where do they export to? Countries are, firstly, shipments are not easy. Flights are, cargo flights are not available. The consumers in America are not waiting for Chinese goods to splash money out on. So supply side is not enough. You need to have the demand side also brought back. So private demand will take some time. So you need public demand, government spending to bridge that gap. We've seen a lot of lending startups come up and many of them have gone on record to say that they wouldn't be lending at this time, right? So there will be a huge capital crunch from all the sides. Uh, Absolutely. Liquidity is going to be a problem. So actually, you will have to have more and more risk capital, more venture capital, and that sort of uh, equity participation. Yeah. Uh, you know, what are some of the major reforms of policy changes uh, that you think needs to kick in now to make this whole Make in India work? See, I mean, uh, this reform is always a medium term sort of uh, goal. I mean, you sort of, you never stop at it until it's ongoing. Uh, right now, the immediate, this thing is, there's a medical problem. You need to attend that. Second, you have a social stability, poverty issue. There are a whole bunch of migrant workers who are without jobs, construction workers who live from month to month on daily wages, etc. Uh, don't have, had, may soon start losing uh, their wages and salaries. So you have to address poverty. Uh, you have to make sure that these people are first bailed out, that there is directed subsidy that reaches this. Because see, you have a medical problem that has to be sorted out, one. Second is you have social stability. You have to make sure that the society remains stable. 
Yeah. Like you don't have riots. You don't have people desperate and in, uh, in remote areas without access to medicine, etc. So they have to be attended to. Then you then look at okay, you have those economic stimulus, etc., which is something that okay, you can throw money at. Um, general estimate is that India can afford to be a little more uh, um, uh, aggressive in terms of public spending. Uh, the general thing is that right now I think the deficit they're planning is about two and a half percent, three percent. General estimates is that we can go up to five percent deficit or six percent deficit temporarily, and uh, that will give you a certain amount. Maybe uh, the US is spending about fifteen percent deficit. Maybe we can't afford to go that level, but about eight percent we can still I think uh, get on with temporarily. So. And that translates to several hundred billions of dollars, which is quite a bit of money if you sort of spend properly. So I think, um, so two, three things: medical immediately, um, you have to sort of get people's health under order. Second is social stability, and third is uh, stimulus to create aggregate demand. The long-term reforms, land, land um, um, acquisition is a big problem. Uh, it is, I mean, uh, they passed, what is it, the LAR Act in 2013, which was about resettlement and rehabilitation. But because there's a, it's a concurrent list, the state governments and the central governments, it's apparently become quite a mess. So land acquisition is a big problem. Uh, power infrastructure is still weak. Our roads are just still uh, not where it should be. So I think uh, the general environment for manufacturing in India is still very challenging. So this whole thing about make in India is good. It's the right thing, but you have to have a supportive infrastructure. You have to make uh, the ease of doing business seriously streamlined. Subsidies is one thing. See, subsidies is not good. It's good for short term because what happens is you create weak companies. So you can only give it from excess. Now in a crisis, yes, but that is not the solution. The solution is that you need to have competitive infrastructure. You need to have land acquisition that is easy. You have to have red tape that is remote. You cannot have bureaucracy. I mean, what is it? 30 approvals you need to start a company. You have to be as competitive. Tax rates have to be incentivized. I mean, we have to get out of this, this thing about, let's quickly get, I mean, like just tax the wealthiest people, 40%, whatever. You're disincentivizing the people who are the entrepreneurial class and who have options of going abroad. So. I think we have to be very sensible. We have to be very creative. We cannot panic in this environment. We become, I think, abusers as an opportunity. And I think there are a lot of opportunities which um, uh, we can go on to later. But I think, uh, uh, and we shouldn't be obsessed about this five trillion economy goal. It is not the level that matters. It is the rate of growth. And we can also elaborate on that. Um, since this is a topic was uh, five trillion, I thought, uh, no, we will address it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, because we have been uh, uh, at least in the we have been chasing that number, right? And since last 12, 18 months, if you see, that's what we've been talking about as a country. Yeah, but actually, honestly, uh, that, that is the least of any uh, professional economist worries. It is uh, uh, a level is not what we live with. What we live with is a rate of change. As long as your rate of change is in the right direction, it's healthy. That's what motivates people. I don't look at, okay, this is going to be 10 trillion, 8 trillion. I look at, is it growing 8% every year? Are my children getting better lives? This is what makes a difference. It is not about, oh, I'm 2 trillion or 10 trillion, or, because it's always something more than that. So I think this fixation with that level is misplaced. 
it should be instead on the rate of growth. So as long as the economy is growing 8% in real terms, it is a very healthy number. Anything above 7, 7.5% is globally among the fastest. And I think we should reorient ourselves towards that because this fixation with 5 trillion, firstly, mathematically, it's not possible. It was never possible. Uh, it's in nominal terms, but even with inflation, uh, 5 trillion by 2025 is not realistic. Now with the two years lost due to coronavirus, uh, it is not possible. But I don't think that is the end of the world. And I think the messaging has to change. It is not 5 trillion. It is 8%. And the rate of growth is always what drives people drives economies and makes difference to people's lives it is um, yeah. not the absolute level right now the problems are coming from everywhere in all the sectors all the segments what are some of the things that we can do um uh, yeah so, so see i think um, uh, the southeast asian story was basically an export driven sort of uh, uh, growth story and that was right in the 60s and 70s and uh, maybe early 80s when the world is very globalized and open to sort of uh, free trade and uh, the US consumer was willing to take on a lot of debt. I think things have changed a lot. It's not as globalized. There is a lot of worry about trade wars and protectionism, etc. So India may not have the luxury of the same export-led story, but fortunately India has got a lot of domestic demand. And I think a more relevant narrative for us is to look at um, our immediate neighborhood. I mean, one success story, I don't know how many are familiar with, is Bangladesh. It is today, um, well, before the crisis, growing about 8%. Its per capita income growth is faster than India's. Once consider the basket case in South Asia, the last five years or last 10 years, they've averaged manufacturing GDP growth of 10%. Wow. And it's, it is not rocket science. See, we have stuck to a lot of glamour and biotech and all of that. They stuck with garment exports, very labor intensive, very um, low profile. I mean, sort of not glamorous. Nobody wants today. They are the second largest garment exporter in the world after China. It has transformed the economy's acceleration. It has brought a lot of women employment. 80% of workers in garments are women employees. So getting Women participation in the workforce, which is again a, one of the liabilities in India, um, has be, been transformational because that makes a lot of other societal changes, uh, which are non-economic, also possible. Once you get women empowered and women engaged in economically active professions. So there's a lot going on in um, uh, Bangladesh. I think we should pay attention to. Uh, they have not shied away from government exports, promoting government export microfinance. They made sure microfinance is... Uh, vibrant and rigorous and fund small companies. They made sure women engagement, as I said, they made sure that large-scale enterprise in garment sector is encouraged. In India, we have discouraged large-scale enterprise in garments because we believe that that should be reserved for small and medium, whereas large enterprises should go to textiles. So I think all of this needs to be reviewed. I mean, we yes, we have a very successful software. We have a very successful outsourcing. We have a very successful I think even the bio, bio, I mean, biomedical sector. But there are a lot of others which are labor intensive and we cannot forget we have a lot of people. So we just cannot look at engineers and just employ them. We have to employ a lot of people who are not equally qualified. Uh, we have to get our women into the workforce. Yeah. So I think a lot of those things, um, uh, I think the examples are there in the neighborhood. And we should follow that. I mean, India's India used to be bigger than Bangladesh as a garment exporter. We are now smaller. 
probably even Vietnam has overtaken us. So I think um, we have to sort of, I think, pay attention to morals that are relevant to us. And um, also, yes, continue with IT, continue with um, all the other um, areas that we are very successful at. And at the end of the day, see, we have to, every country has to work with its own comparative advantage. Ours is people. Ours is um, online skills, digital skills. Ours is also geography and time zone. We are well positioned to be a logistics center. We are well positioned to be, uh, I mean, like globally, time zones are almost equally distributed from India. Uh, exploit that. So I think there are a lot of things which uh, I think uh, we can do a lot more. And then, of course, tourism which is again labor intensive and uh, India's variety and geography and history. I think there's a lot more uh, that's possible. So um, yes, we can take general guidelines from the success of Southeast Asia and of Bangladesh, but then we have to then customize it to the Indian context and India has its own sort of nuances. And I think we have to play to our comparative advantage. Yeah. And because the only common theme is uh, Bureaucracy has to be cut. You have to be business friendly. You have to sort of uh, make market sort of forces. You can't subsidize. You can't, it's not a charity. You can subsidize initially and start up, but you cannot support them forever. If you're not competitive, you're not strong enough, you will not survive in the global market. And I think the final point for um, medium, small uh, enterprises is that you're competing against China. So if you're not competitive and if you're not viable, you will not survive. You know, one of the narratives, and I'm sure you would have heard about it, is uh, that right now it's, an, it's also a time which India could use in its favor advantageously because of the trade war which is happening and, you know, China affected so massively and all the negative news around China. What do you have to say about that? Like, it, we can capitalize right now. Absolutely. I think um, uh, this... Uh, China, I thought, was a big opportunity because almost universally, uh, every every Fortune 500 company with its uh, manufacturing base in China is looking to diversify. Uh, it is a China plus one strategy where you cannot put all your eggs in one basket because you saw what happens when one country goes into lockdown. So they are very interested in looking at alternatives. And the initial reports are Vietnam, Indonesia, probably ahead of the curve. But um, at the end of the day, there are only two countries of a billion plus people with domestic markets of this size. So you cannot ignore India. And as long as India sort of actually, there are some reports that they are preparing, um, I think, uh, land twice the size of Luxembourg uh, to give to companies who want to shift out of China. So we must deliberately target these give them uh, tax breaks. And I think the, the big challenge in India is that you have to make this a business-friendly country. Yeah. Uh, just talking about making India doesn't work. What, what do businessmen look at? Okay, what happened with Vodafone? Did you mistreat them? Were the tax, uh, this thing, in retrospectively charged? Was that right? These are the things that investors look at. So I think... Um, you have to create an environment that is stable. You don't change rules randomly or erratically. You don't have tax priorities, which are very short-term oriented. You have to look at a longer picture, the longer term. So I think um, we seriously have to have a more business-friendly bureaucracy. And I think uh, 
it is slowly getting better, but there's a lot of socialism and a lot of historical, I think, um, uh, dead wood that we still carry in our thinking. Um, making money, being rich is not a bad thing, um, which is what China finally accepted. And I think you have to behave in that manner that let people make money the right way uh, legally and create an environment that is conducive to that. So I think um, uh, these are certain missteps that India has to uh, get its act in order because I think there's a great opportunity. It will happen. The diversification out of China, India will be one of the landing points, mainly because the domestic market is so large and attractive. So I think that will be one of the biggest benefits that uh, Indian manufacturing will uh, reap, but we have to improve our power structure. I mean, uh, power supply, and basically the whole electricity, this thing has to, that infrastructure has to be attended to. We have to make sure that uh, land acquisition gets uh, attended to. Labor laws have to be worked on. And then taxation and FDI policy has to be consistent. And we cannot be erratic about it. And we have to have attractive rates of corporate taxation. So I think all these have to work together. And uh, we will, I think, uh, get this benefit. The other big benefit is going to be digitization. India is already a very digitally sophisticated country. Uh, the one trend that will be reinforced post-crisis is going to be everything is going to be whatever you can digitize, what can be digital, what can be online, make it online. Education. So I think that, again, I think is going to be a big opportunity for India. Um, so, and then as I said, the time zone, the location, the geography, India is very centrally positioned. And I absolutely believe that we haven't, we are not a transit hub. We are not a logistics center. Whereas Singapore and Dubai, which are not ideally located, have actually pretty much eaten our cake here. Will we see a lot of FDI money coming to us after this pandemic? It will, but it's sort of, uh, and I think more more exciting that quite a bit could be manufacturing, which is getting displaced out of China. And um, and I think um, China, whatever, uh, fairly or unfairly, has uh, been stigmatized because of uh, issues of this origin of the, this thing that they suppress. Uh, and they have not handled it in the best fashion. So I think um, there are certain, I think, um, wins that India scored, and uh, there will be a certain more affinity and acceptance of uh, production coming out of India as opposed to, let's say, China. Uh, I think it's for us to sort of seize that opportunity. And um, uh, because of the market size, I think we will end up, uh, yeah, we will end up uh, doing it. Um, but uh, it is, um, um, I think India has acted responsibly. It has sort of uh, brought its um, people back. Uh, we have sent um, even, um, I think, uh, defense resources to bring back. We have supplied medicine to our neighborhood. So generally, it's, I think, acted responsibly. It has been very tough with the lockdown, despite risk to a lot of migrant workers, etc. So... Overall, I think if you look at countries, I think India is one of the countries which I think has acted very sensibly and uh, pragmatically. It's now <clears throat> sort of, now you sort of uh, convert it into FDI. And uh, so I think yeah, uh, we've, ticked, yeah, we've ticked one of the points, but I think the other point is that we have to be reliable and we have to be economically sophisticated in our legal environment and regulatory framework.
the growth that we will see because of the whole digital infrastructure layer that we are creating that will be far superior than the overall real infrastructure that we have in the country and that will lead to uh, growth for us what do you have to say about it no absolutely and i'm i'm glad you sort of uh, touched on that because uh, see there are two fundamental uh, i think policies that have been executed uh, and uh, implemented first of course aadhaar this uh, a unique id system is the largest in the world uh, why is it so transformational it is transformational because biggest problem in rural india is identity yeah. it is very difficult for a poor uh, farmer to establish his identity so you have property transactions which are abused there is like all sorts of hawala this thing so identity stops uh, financial um uh, Uh, advancement okay credit cards how do you issue credit cards if i can't establish identity so i think just the fact that now you have a reliable way of identifying somebody means financially a lot of services now can open up on credit in rural india so literally rural india can slowly start joining the mainstream so i think this aadhar is underestimated um and i think it will really help us um uh, uh get rural india incorporated into the mainstream the other fundamental and i think uh, important uh, policy execution has been on gst this gst essentially has reduced the scope for tax evasion the duplication of taxation cascading taxation and for the first time india's states are one market before this if you needed to supply bangalore you need to have a factory in karnataka if you needed to supply bombay you had to have because of the border excise and whatever costs of business so it was literally fragmented markets it was like each state was a different country for the first time we can have one factory supplying the same price goods across india so i think that's transformational scale i think the execution has been poor it has been very complicated it is literally if you are in a restaurant one air conditioned part has got a different gst non air conditioned i mean it's like is not even uh, sensible so i think that's getting streamlined the compliance costs are very expensive so the exporters the small companies medium companies they say that the cost of complying with this we can't afford so i think that has to be streamlined i think there is something like fortnightly you have to report these taxes to some several agencies so i think they are slowly getting it together but fundamentally it's the right initiative and it will finally make india one market so that is the other attraction for fdi because now india on paper we say 1.3 billion people but it was not 1.3 it was like different states with these pockets so i think these two are very fundamental um demonetization was not a professionally uh, supported uh, scheme it was supposed to be for black money which didn't so that one um, i would say was one of the missteps but uh, i think gst and aadhar are very fundamental and uh, will help the company country over time and um, uh, i think it is um, radical and uh, and i think credit, great credit to nandan lakani because i think um, the implementation i mean we talk about a billion people it was rolled out pretty much on time um, so i think uh, it is the largest most reliable identity program anywhere in the world if we have to continue to grow at 8% or 7% 8% what you what you have been talking about what are the few key things 
that the government should be listening to we all should be listening to and and you know as citizens also we should be influencing that those things happen oh absolutely see it, it's a large country it's a diverse country it, it, manifold challenges uh, i mean just keeping the country together stable is a big achievement and that's where i think you have to give credit to china can you imagine an unstable china so i think uh, we have to give a lot of credit to that leadership um so i think for india uh, as as yeah i think my goal would be 8% growth as uh, soon as we can get back to it um it is not going to be the next two years the next two years i think most likely uh, we will be almost uh, maybe if you are lucky 5% better than um, uh, over two years um in terms of how do we get back to 8% i think we have to do play to a comparative advantage which starts with human capital so we have to make sure that the demographic dividend plays out we have to make sure that the uh, people coming out of schools and colleges are educated with functional literacy what do i mean by functional literacy they must be able to write basic good english they must know basic mathematics they must have basic skills of presentation they must be functionally employable and um, uh, in fact the other panelists were supposed to who will probably join later uh, he will tell you a lot more about the difficulty in employing temporary workers today is that half of them you have to train again they are not employable so i think we have to make sure that this demographic dividend is not wasted second the middle class uh generally the rule of thumb is once middle class hits about one third 30% of population it is dramatic why is the middle class so important the middle class <clears throat> pays a lot of attention to education for them the main priorities are the children get educated and have a better life because of which they pay a lot of attention to cleanliness in government to corruption making sure it, teachers are well paid we don't have rush for wars so there is a certain amount of responsibility that comes with the middle class plus the middle class has got surplus to spend on consumer durables fdi is not going to come into a poor country fdi will come in when you have people with spending power so middle class is important the other is women participation and i will keep repeating this because india i only learned this today only 23% of women are in the labor force it is the 10th worst participation rate in the world wow. only countries worse than us are iraq uh, somalia sudan i mean these are war torn countries and we were better off 10 years ago and part of the reason is that i think government sector is not i mean growing much a lot of the women workers were in agriculture they are not needed so much then religion and culture lot less women muslim women participate uh the richer uh women in other religions also prefer to not work so the participation rate women participation rate in india is one of the lowest in the world which has its own consequences yeah. and i think we are basically not using the skills and talents of half our population yeah and there is estimates like in if the us and uk could increase their women participation and that is already a high rate their gdp productivity could improve 1 to 2% so can you imagine what yeah. we are missing out on so that then i think credit we have to look after our banking system we have to clean it up today npas are 9% the biggest worry right now is during this crisis the npa the bad loans could double which basically yeah. means you have a dysfunctional credit system 
and that is a blood circulation. Without that, all eight percent etc. is a pipe dream. Infrastructure: we have to attend to power, we have to attend to land, we have to attend to labor market, um, roads. So literally, almost all these infrastructure issues. Above all, I think land and labor we have to really work on. Land acquisition is a nightmare. So this uh, LAR, uh, whatever legislation which was supposed to help rehabilitation and resettlement, has not worked out. Has not been implemented properly. So a lot of the problem in India is the policies, the right ones. It's the implementation that is lacking. Um, so I think. Uh, these are some of the things that i would start with in an outcomes work on um, comparative advantage which is human capital which is like we have a great capacity for education we have very talented engineers doctors specialists make medical tourism a big thing tourism as it is we have a lot of let's make medical tourism a big thing let's make logistics let's make indian airports the hub for regional travel let's displace traffic from dubai and singapore so i think the it's almost like it's a big country with many challenges we have to work on all fronts at the same time we cannot ignore the small enterprises because they are labor intensive we cannot ignore the rural markets because that's where a lot of the country lives so there are it's almost like working on all these fronts at the same time and then of course slowly weed out corruption weed out tax evasion or i mean weed out um, a lot of cronyism um, make sure that the market forces Start getting a free play. Uh, we need to make sure institutions are strengthened. The Supreme Court, the Reserve Bank of India, these are strengthened. FDI does not flow into a vacuum. You have to have their rights protected. So I think um, uh, I think a very steady hand, very sensible environment, and what um, investors hate is uncertainty. So sometimes I just say that you don't have to come out with anything dramatic. just make a sensible policy and stick with it and be patient and people will come india is a big market there are i mean this is the last frontier left china is already quite saturated this is the last frontier for new <coughs> consumer demand so i think um just play to that advantage and make sure that our children are educated and they come out with the right skills um and then eventually the brain drain will reverse today we still lose some of our brightest people to developed countries and eventually i think as you create this environment slowly people will start coming back and uh, it is a virtuous cycle which has happened in the software industry where a lot of experienced yeah. indians have come back from silicon uh, i think the venture capital field you have a lot of indians with experience coming back um biotechnology it's happening so i think um, we can turn this into a virtuous cycle and i in many ways for many reasons demographics included i think india in many ways is like economic future i mean along with china and lots of asia so the gravity of economic uh, the center of gravity for economic activity is shifting eastwards and i think we just have to uh, pre- prepare an environment that is conducive and politically create uh, stability and peace and uh, A lot of these things, I think, it will solve itself. It's about not interfering too much, not micromanaging, um, not doing things which is erratic, and then execution. We have to execute, implement well. Our policies are good, our plans are good, but the implementation and execution leaves a lot to be desired.
Paul, thank you. You know, I am taking so much and I'm sure everyone who will watch this will take so much and, and hopefully, yeah, uh, we learn. I, I, you know, one of the things that sticks to with me is what you said, that our advantage to make this five trillion dream or whatever uh, is that we are the last frontier left in terms of the consumer demand that this country, that's a very phenomenal thing that you've said, because that nobody can negate. Like, that is a truth. Absolutely. And, uh, but it's just that, see, none, none of this for granted. So yeah. I think none of this is inevitable. Yeah. It's just that we have a major gift that we have to sort of uh, make the most of it. Yeah. We can also waste it. So I think um, none of this is an entitlement. It is for us to sort of cherish and nurture and uh, optimize it and i think that's uh, what will uh, uh, the generations that are ahead of us will uh, hopefully be grateful for i mean that we acted responsibly and created a future that is uh, better for them and yeah. i think that's the excitement about this country i mean in fact people ask me why is uh, india such a happy country though it's such a poor place and i the only simple answer i said is just that i know my children will live better than i did yeah and many indians know that which you can't yeah. say in a lot of other countries. And I think yeah. that is the most, uh, I think, um, uh, motivating, um, in, inspiring sort of, uh, um, I don't know, uh, thought or uh, drive. What is your equation with money? What's your relationship with money? What has it been over the years? I mean, it's important. Um, but I mean, I think, it's, it's, I, think, I think everybody knows it, right? It's a good, uh, it's a good servant, a bad master. Um, I mean, it opens a lot of doors. I mean, uh, and uh, creates a certain, I think, uh, amount of opportunities. And uh, you get to, I think, um, see a lot more of the world. You get to, I mean, I think experience a lot more of life uh, if you sort of manage uh, the resources well. But it's, it's not money in itself. It's basically money as a servant yeah. that you use it for charity. And I think that has been the most satisfying. I mean, I lived half my life overseas. and. Coming back to India, the most satisfying is that uh, a little money can make a big difference in India. So you can educate uh, people's children. You can attend to somebody's surgery. So I think um, you can make a big difference. So I think it is very satisfying. And I think uh, it is a privilege that we are able to uh, uh, be philanthropic, that we have the money to help others. And I think uh, people in that position should feel privileged, absolutely, that. Uh, um, you are able to uh, help somebody. But um, oh, it is, uh, yeah. yeah. So I think uh, no, money is a good thing as long as you use it properly and uh, you don't sort of uh, yeah, become yeah. a slave to it. If you had to pick one thing, if you had to implement a change, what would be that one thing that you will pick? <laughs> Never ask an economist uh, one thing. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's... Uh, See, the long term, it is about uh, demographic dividend. We have to absolutely make sure that uh, uh, our children and the students coming out of colleges are functionally literate and uh, they're employable so that we don't waste this demographic dividend. Um, and if, if I'm allowed a shorter term, this thing, I think get our land acquisition under control because it is holding up a lot of investment particularly manufacturing related which is very land intensive 
it is labor intensive and india at, at this stage of development we have a lower share than we should have uh, we are much lower than we are at least four five percentage points lower than bangladesh as a share of gdp so i think uh, it will create a lot more jobs equally tourism and the tourism is the other favorite i have because it is labor intensive it doesn't require a lot of education and india has got a lot of history and diversity and it is well located geographically so i think tourism both regular tourism and medical tourism i think we should uh, make the most of okay there's there is this audience question which has come multiple times so i have to ask you this sure. do you think sure. interest rate would be further waived off for businesses and an extension of moratorium till december is a possibility no i think the interest rates yes i mean and uh, not only the level of interest rates there will be more quantitative measures so i think rbi will open up its flat gates and that is the monetary policy is the easiest thing to sort of and do domestically uh, the consequences that we might have to be careful about what is the impact on the indian rupee the indian rupee might weaken if you do it uh, excessively but yes absolutely i think we will see lower um, interest rates moratorium uh, possible but just, see moratorium is a double edged sword in fact it's not forgiven this debt is just getting delayed and your i mean banks are allowed to charge interest on interest so i'm not so sure it's a good idea because you eventually somebody has to bear that debt so either the banks have to write off or the government will have to step in and write off uh, or they keep it on your uh, individual balance sheet so a moratorium doesn't mean your obligations go away somebody private sector government or the banks finally have to bear it so i'm not sure uh, extending the moratorium would be a great idea but uh, i think um, helping with salaries or subsidies and people out of unemployed i mean giving them some sort of government jobs something like that is much more constructive but yeah interest rates absolutely monetary policy will be eased 